to be having a look at the Beatitudes this morning, and because, as Miss Emily did, uh, there's, there's eight of them, I'm going to split this into two messages. So next week we'll look at the second four. So this week we'll look at the first four, and uh, we're going to look at the question, who are you? Who are you? In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus sees the crowd and separates his disciples out and takes them uh, up onto the mountain, up onto the mount. And this is the this is uh, this is is, is uh, why this portion of scripture is referenced as uh, Sermon on the Mount, with the Beatitudes being the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew's account of Jesus's Beatitudes goes deep into the core of Christian character and Christian identity. That's why I ask the question, "Who are you?" The question that Jesus is asking of us too is, who are you? Now, if someone were to ask you that very question, how would you answer? And Jesus begins his sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, eight statements that we have to be very careful not to make into some trite one-liners or something that you just put on the wall of uh, your bedroom or stick it on a refrigerator door because it's sweet and nice. These eight statements that Jesus makes are absolutely critical this morning to comprehending Christian character and Christian identity. Jesus is asking you and me the very, the very pertinent question, who are you? And puts it in eight statements to help us understand who we are. And so all we need to see that if we are to understand and engage with the, the challenge of Jesus' words is that there were firstly, what we need to see is then there's firstly and primarily we need to understand who we are and where our identity lies. Now, in the first four statements in Matthew's Beatitude, Jesus establishes character and identity. And he does that before he establishes conduct. So, as we digest together these first four statements, I want, to, I want you to be asking yourself, as we go through those statements, who am I? What does Jesus say I am? So, before we jump into these four statements, I want to make a couple of comments on the Beatitudes as a whole so that we can better understand what <coughs> Jesus is saying. First, the Beatitudes can't be divided or looked at individually. They must be viewed as a whole. Someone cannot be just mournful. Someone cannot be just poor in spirit. Someone cannot be just hungry and thirsty. When Jesus laid out all these eight identifiers, he was doing so to describe Christian character. In other words, every Christian should take on all these characteristics. This is not just for new Christians. This is not just for the super Christian, but for everyone who names the name of Jesus. All Christians should take on these characteristics. So verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall receive the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 10 the last verse of the Beatitudes says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus uses the same advantage or benefit phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, at the beginning and at the end of his statement. Now, in ancient theological literature, this is called an inclusio. It is intentional. It is an actual literary device. These literary devices or inclusios are found throughout the Old Testament in books of Genesis, in Ruth, 
in, in Jeremiah, in Psalms, and in Isaiah. So basically, the first statement and the last statement includes everything in between. It's an inclusio. So if you are a Christian, if you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, each one of these statements should identify who you are. Secondly, these descriptions indicate the essential difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. The words that Jesus speak are a call to be different, not just in a small way, but in a very radical way. They are a call to personal and mutual accountability. The difference between the difference begins, Jesus says, is with character. What Jesus declares is that the character of a Christian should be totally different to that of the world. That the value of a Christian, the values of a Christian are significantly different to those that are in the world. So what does the world value? Self-confidence, self-expression. The world values sensuality, wealth, power, comfort and fame. What does religion value? Moralism. The absence of doing certain things. If we're to be brutally honest, that's how we separate ourselves from the world. However, what Jesus is laying out in this text makes moralism look extremely shallow. The difference that Jesus is calling us to is to be part of a totally different kingdom. A Christian should be living in a vastly different way, not just a little different way, not just a little bit of abstinence from certain things, not just showing morality. And with that said, Jesus asks the foundational question, who are you? Do you belong to the kingdom? Or are you truly, are you truly blessed? Are you filled? Are you comforted? Do you have peace? So who are you, he's asking. And are you different to who you thought you were? So let's consider these four questions, or these, these, these questions that have just been asked. But let's look at them first in the first four Beatitudes. And this is part one of a two-part series. Beatitude number one, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, most Christian commentators have commentated that each Beatitude builds off the next. So all the characteristics in the Beatitudes are, in a sense, a result of being poor in spirit. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. That all the characteristics in the Beatitudes are, in a sense, a result of being poor in spirit. That Christian character begins with the, an understanding of what it means to be poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit is recognising that the world is not how it should be, and that starts with me. That starts with me. And there's a critical awareness of spiritual and moral bankruptcy in the presence of God. Now, the context of the Gospel of Matthew is that it is written to a community of Jewish people, a people that understood the Old Testament and the significance of its writings. For us, in a 21st century Western culture, when we hear the phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, it conjures up the thoughts of social justice or denial of helplessness. But that's not so to an ancient Jewish person who understood the Old Testament. So what is Jesus referencing here? He's referencing Isaiah, he's referencing Psalms, he's referencing Ecclesiastes, he's referencing Jeremiah. 
All these say that there's a spiritual poverty in the presence of God, that, that we all stand before God as bankrupt sinners. The Apostle Paul picks up this theme and understanding in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. He says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, no one, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So let's quickly talk about what poor in spirit is not. It doesn't mean that we are weak. It doesn't mean that we lack courage. It is not the suspension of our personality. Being poor in spirit is to have complete abstinence, abstinence, sorry, absence of pride, complete absence of self-assurance and self-reliance. It's, not, it's, it, it's to have nothing that we are in before the presence of God in the inward understanding, not in the outward expression. It's an inward understanding, being poor in spirit, not an outward expression. John Stott said to be poor in spirit is to acknowledge honestly and with understanding our spiritual poverty, indeed our spiritual bankruptcy before God. Just as the Beatitudes begin with being poor in spirit, so too is the beginning of Christianity all, it's, the beginning of Christianity is all about being poor in spirit because it defines our citizenship. But theirs is the kingdom of God, Jesus says. So it defines our citizenship. So the question is, who are you? So building off the first beatitude, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Again, Jesus is using the significance of Jewish theological language and builds from the previous statement. Now, a 21st century literal understanding would say of this verse, blessed are those who cry. Blessed are the people who are unhappy. Blessed are those people who are sad. That's what a 21st century literal understanding would be. If we were to look at verse 4 from the context of what Jesus speaks out from his theological heritage, then we can clearly see that Jesus is developing a spiritual character template, a recipe, as Miss Emily tells us, for us to follow. If being poor in spirit isn't a financial statement this morning, then Jesus is not referring to natural mourning, is he? That you are sad because of loss or because of pain. Jesus is referring to a spiritual condition. He's referring to a spiritual posture. Always in Scripture, when spiritual mourning is mentioned, it talks about sin. Jesus begins to say that to be part of the kingdom and to see God's hand on your life, you have to be poor in spirit. Then, not only am I bankrupt and unable to resolve my problems, but my problem is sin. In the Old Testament, weeping and mourning is connected to lamenting over transgressions and sin. Psalm 119, verse 136 says, Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Now, for the majority of us sitting here this morning, I think that most of us wouldn't have an issue saying that before God, I know that I am a sinner. Even with an elementary understanding of the scriptures, we can admit that much. But I wonder if we mourn over our sin. The essence of sin is much greater than just doing bad things. The essence 
of sin is doing our own thing. It's saying, I know what is right in my life and that is what I am going to do. It's taking the very place of God. In other words, God, I appreciate your thoughts and I appreciate your ideas, but I am in control and I have got a handle on this thing. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to behave the way I want and I'm going to believe the way I want. So the question is, do you mourn over your sin? Let's look at the promise. Blessed are those who mourn they will be comforted. When we cry out to God, like the Apostle Paul did in Romans 7, verse 24, when he said, What a wretched man am I. God, I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. God says you will be comforted. Jesus paid the penalty for your sins, for our sins, for my sins, so that we could find comfort and we could find rest. That's why he is our Sabbath rest now. So Jesus describes... Who is his who his followers are? He begins by saying that they are poor in spirit and they recognize that their problems are beyond themselves and they recognize their greatest problem is sin. So Jesus is establishing this amazing difference between the world's character and the developing of a Christian character. He says that in your coming you need to come empty and broke, especially broken about your sin which means that you do not have it all together, which means you do not look great, which means you have issues. Amen? I'll put two hands up, actually. And that leads us to our third beatitude. Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 37. Psalm 37, verse 11 says, But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. The word for meek is gentle, humble, considerate, submissive. The word picture is that the word picture that's been painted uh, in, the, in the Greek word meek is that of a bit that goes into a horse's mouth. In fact, the ancient people would have used this phrase to describe a broken or submissive horse. We say that when a horse is broken in. James gives us a couple of good examples of the nature of meekness, uh, how, the, how the ancient people understood it. James 3, 3 to 4 says, When we put bits in mouths of horses, they make them obey us. It makes them obey us. We can turn the whole animal. Or take ships, for example. Although uh, they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. So this makes perfect sense in following what we've already learnt from the Beatitudes. We're poor in spirit, we mourn over our sin, and we are meek or God-controlled. There's a humility in how we handle ourselves, that we are no longer protecting ourselves because we see there's nothing worth protecting. If we are poor in spirit, and we're mourning over our sin, there's a strength in meekness that allows us to be real with people and not be defensive. The meek shall inherit the earth because they are grounded in truth and reality. The meek person realises that the only person they can keep in check and should keep in check is themselves. 
The opposite of meekness is self-assertiveness. The opposite of meekness is manipulation. The opposite of meekness is deception. The opposite of meekness is aggressiveness. So, who are you? Are you meek? Finally, Beatitude number four. This is one of the most significant and critical Beatitudes. It happens to be right in the centre of what Jesus is saying and doing. As we think about the first three statements, they are comparatively negative statements. Poor in spirit, mourning, meekness or lowliness. They paint a picture of an awareness of an unescapable reality. In the fourth beatitude, Jesus gets to the heart of the issue. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, every human being alive on planet Earth hungers and thirsts for righteousness. The word righteousness means to be approved or to be accepted. So if I'm righteous in the eyes of someone, I'm approved and I'm accepted. Now, on a non-spiritual level, like I said, every human being on planet Earth uh, uh, alive uh, hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And so this happens on a non-spiritual level. We're all on a search for righteousness. We're all on a search for acceptance. We're all desperately wanting to fit in and be acknowledged and be approved. So if everyone is on this search for righteousness, what is Jesus really saying? in this verse 6. To get a full understanding and meaning, we have to go back to the original Greek language that the text was originally written in and look at the grammar. Because there is something important that we miss in language. In the Greek, what Jesus is doing is using the accusative case. But the problem is, the way our Western culture hears Things. The English language, the English speaking eyes or the English listening ears tend to read Jesus' words that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are looking for some bread. They're looking for some water because they are hungry and not satisfied. So the conversation would go something like this. I want some bread. I want some water. So grammatically, in the English, that is a genitive case to possess something or the ability to possess something. I want. Yeah. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in the accusative case expose the true meaning of what Jesus is saying. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for perfect righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for a righteousness that they don't have. A righteousness that is divinely given and gained by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ himself. The word hunger in the Greek language paints a picture of a poor person that toils in order to fight off starvation. The word thirst in the Greek language has a stronger meaning. It's a painful need for water to stay alive. Consider Psalm 42, verses 1 to 2. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Jesus is the satisfaction and fulfilment of our spiritual needs this morning. He is the bread of life and the one who imparts living water. 
Revelation 7, 6 to 17, 7, 7, 7, 16 to 17 says, Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst, for the Lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. The Christian is someone who is poor in spirit and that they mourn over their sin and transgressions. They are, there, there is a meekness and a hunger and thirst for righteousness. But not just some righteousness, but the perfect righteousness that is divinely given and gained by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. John Stott said, For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. When we hunger and thirst for a righteousness that is not our own, it takes us to the feet of Jesus for perfect righteousness, a place of brokenness, a place of awareness of sin, a place of meekness where we are satisfied. The question that has been prominent throughout is who are you? Where is your character and identity found? It is so essential that we examine our heart this day to see if we only are fleeing from of sin, that we're only interested in the blood of Christ for a pardon, or are we hungry, are we thirsty this morning, thirsting after Christ for our satisfaction? It's an important question to ask ourselves this morning. Let us pray. Father God, while we know we can never approximate the edges of your righteous character, Please use the Holy Spirit to make us into people who reflect your holiness to those around us. Where we are inconsistent, please help us to be faithful. Where we are tempered and undisciplined, please bless us with self-control. Where we are insensitive and unfeeling, please help us to see life from the viewpoint of the other. Father, as we long to please and honour you in what we say and do, we thank you for your grace and mercy. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus Christ. Amen.